today. Beat him, Superman, or I'll have to become his wife. I can't even touch him, Lois. My punches go right through him. Professor Zoom Productions, in association with the Fire and Water Podcast Network, proudly present for your listening pleasure, the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show, hosted by Professor Zoom Yukonori. Today's episode, Who Zoomed the Flash? Greetings and welcome to the fourth episode of the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show, a celebration of comic book tales that are able to tell a complete story within a single issue, a proud and eventually worthy member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am your host, Professor Zoom Yukonori, and I am so delighted to be here. In fact, I'm as joyous as a quarter-bin rummager who had just found a copy of Batman Adventures Issue 12, on sale for a quarter. Well, of course it cost a quarter. Just in a quarter bin, ain't it? Oh, well, what a surprise, everyone. It's Mr. Toby Manning, otherwise known as the Terra Man. What brings you by the recording studio on the day I had planned to record a podcast without a guest co-host? Oh, was that today? Well, while I'm here, I might as well keep you company. Uh-huh... Well, at least you're not fabricating some expensive special effects ruse like the Libra character in our first episode. But if you really want to co-host with me, Mr. Manning, all you have to do is... Don't mind if I do. Ask. (sighs) Right. Well, then. Yes, sir. Howdy to all you out there on podcast listening land, from your favorite co-host, the Terror Man. And I'm as happy as a weasel in a hen house. How very apt, sir. Solomon Grundy don't understand. Show notes say no co-host this episode, but Cowboy Man now co-host. And why lame computer fetch Cracking Man in living room? After he almost... Uh, why don't we get to that picture book you're covering today, Professor? Hmm? Oh, yes. Quite right you are, Mr. Manning. The done-in-one wonder we are spotlighting today is Superman's Girlfriend, Lois Lane, issue 74. Cover dated May 1967, but according to the brilliant Mike's Amazing World of Comics website, it was on sale on March 23rd, 1967. I've been meaning to ask you... Why is it that the dates on the covers don't match the time these picture books go on sale? Oh, well, the cover date printed on the DC Comics themselves was actually the poll date, which at the time was two months ahead of the actual date of sale. The poll date? The poll date of a publication is an indication to the news dealer of when to remove unsold stock from the newsstands for refund from the publisher. Ah. Thank you, Lanos. And please kindly meet Solomon Grundy in the living room and instruct him again in regards to the, uh, cracking plans for later in the program, yes? 
By cracking, are you referring to entity B? Yes, yes, go to it, please. Acknowledged. Okay. Now, before we begin, I should mention from the start that the portrayal of women in the Silver Age DC comic books, like those of most television and movies of the day, was, frankly, quite sexist. And Lois Lane, which was the only other DC comic besides Wonder Woman that featured a female character in the title role, was certainly no exception. In fact, I had found many Lois Lane stories reflected a rather chauvinistic attitude toward women who chose to pursue a career versus being a homemaker or a full-time mother. The Lois Lane in these stories was for the most part a driven and brilliant newspaper reporter, but it was oftentimes implied that she would give all of that up and be a stereotypical 1950s-esque happy homemaker if she were ever to become Mrs. Superman. I presume that this underlying attitude was driven by editor Mort Weisinger, who in the letters column of Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane would openly share stereotypical opinions of Lois as a character or of women in general. For example, in issue 77, he stated that Superman could not trust Lois with knowledge of his Clark Kent identity because, quote, everybody knows that no woman can keep a secret. While it was debatable whether these statements were serious or made in jest for entertainment purposes, the fact remained that these were printed in comic books of the 1960s, when the primary audience was impressionable young children. Of course, I did not truly make all of these observations and realizations until my late teenage years. At age 10, the few Lois Lane comic books I had owned did not seem to be any different from syndicated reruns of I Love Lucy or I Dream of Jeannie or The Honeymooners. But I also knew at age 10, just from observing my own parents and the parents of my friends, that none of that entertainment was a true reflection of real life. Moving to this particular issue, Superman's Girlfriend Lois Lane, issue 74, was one of the duplicate comics that I had received from the sorting of my Uncle Kenzo's collection. It had another one of those captivating covers that made me want to read this right away, but first I felt I had to read another duplicate comic I had received from Uncle, which was The Flash, volume 1, issue 147. This Flash comic featured the second appearance of the sinister Reverse Flash character, but it was the first Reverse Flash story that I had read at age 10, since Uncle did not have a duplicate copy of the first Reverse Flash story, which was in Flash Volume 1, Issue 139. Fortunately, Issue 147 informed me of everything I needed to know about the Reverse Flash and how he came to be. And the reason I bring up this Flash issue is because on this Lois Lane cover, Superman appeared to be fighting the Reverse Flash, who stood proud in a Carmine Infantino-ish hands-on-hips pose, chuckling as the Man of Steel's punch passed harmlessly through the villain's solar plexus. This was all taking place outdoors in Metropolis City Park, denoted by a simple background of grass and rocks and a single tree. Standing by the tree on the left side of the cover was a very distressed Lois Lane, who explained that Superman had to beat the Man in Yellow, or else she would have to become his wife. Sounds like Sparkin' ain't changed much since the 80s. Uh, this comic is from the late 60s, Terraman. I'm talking 1880s, Professor. Quite common then to see two gents get to slogging over a purdy missy. Query. How was Entity Superman expected to defeat Entity Reverse Flash when his punches go right through him? 
That was admittedly the least of my questions that prompted my ten-year-old self to read this comic, Lanos. I really wanted to know why the Reverse Flash was goading Superman into a fight by trying to take his girlfriend away. And this gives you an idea of how little I knew about boy-girl relationships at age 10. And I suppose I should mention right at the start that Lois Lane comic books, or most comic books for that matter, were not a very good instruction model for boys on how to properly romance the opposite sex. This was evident in the opening splash page of the lead story, which essentially showed the Reverse Flash character running across some choppy ocean waves, dragging Lois Lane behind him by the hair, like a stereotypical cartoon caveman. Superman was also shown swooping down from the sky, looking to punch the speedster in the back of the head, and was startled by the somehow lucid Lois telling him to stop his attack. Lois explained to Superman, and to the reader, that the speedster did not mean her any harm, and this, uh, bizarre treatment of her, quote, must be the way they court a girl on the world from which he comes. Now, my day may be long past, but even in the old west we were a lot more civilized when it came to sitting a sage hen. I fail to see how sitting on a potential mate would be any less barbaric, especially given Entity Terraman's weight and stature. That does it, you yammered yak. I'm a gonna- Gentlemen, please, could we possibly go through one podcast recording without the two of you at each other's throats? But I do not have a throat to. Why don't you build yourself a robot body like that Ayatretbot had done, and then I can throttle you. I was speaking metaphorically, Lanos. Can we please move on, gentlemen? Yes, Affirmative. Thank you. Now, this opening page was another symbolic splash page used in the Silver Age of DC Comics, used to preview an event in the story while not quite accurately depicting the scene as it would later appear. The caption box set up the tale by pointing out that Lois Lane had some unusual boyfriends in her time, including Superman and even Mr. Mix's Pitalik as examples. But this new beau would take first prize for sheer weirdness, and he would court Lois as she had never been courted before, as this hair-raising scene no doubt indicated. So let us dive right into the lead story in Superman's Girlfriend, Lois Lane, Issue 74. Superman's Unbeatable Rival Writer, Leo Dorfman Artist, Kurt Schaffenberger Editor, Mort Weisinger Our story began with Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen covering the story of a fire, and apparently it was from inside the building on fire. This did not appear to be very wise. Indeed, because the wall of the office the reporting duo were in was collapsing. Jimmy immediately summoned Superman to save him with his ultrasonic signal watch. Lois, however, was already ducking under one of the desks, telling Jimmy to do the same, since Superman did not respond. While huddled under the desks, which shielded them from the tumbling bricks from the wall, Jimmy suddenly remembered that Superman could not have saved them, as the Man of Steel was attending a Justice League meeting on another world. And sure enough, the very next panel cut to Superman at that very meeting, on the still unnamed faraway planet. The Flash, gavel in hand, was moderating the Conclave that also included Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Hawkman, Aquaman, The Atom, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Superman was urging the Flash to speed up the proceedings, for Earth was essentially unprotected while they were all away. The Flash banged the gavel, telling Superman that he was out of order, 
and that the League would remain in this meeting until they negotiate an interplanetary treaty to establish a new asteroid prison for space criminals. While it is essentially expository dialogue when read out loud, I always did like how the Silver Age comics, and Bronze Age comics for that matter, would employ character dialogue to inform the reader on why certain events are happening on the panels, rather than simply relying on caption box narration. And we will encounter several examples of such expository dialogue later in this story. Oh, and I still find having Superman telling the Flash to hasten things along to be quite amusing. A short time later, back on Earth, at an observatory at an undisclosed location in the United States, a gray-clad astronomer sitting at an immense telescope informed a balding, bespectacled man in a business suit that a strange space capsule was falling from space and that it did not look like one of theirs. The bespectacled man casually remarked that no nation on the planet has had any space launching recently, so this mysterious capsule must be from another world. The next panel gave us a glimpse of this strange capsule, which appeared to be a large orange jewel streaking toward the Atlantic near North America. Through expository word balloons, the men at the observatory continued their speculation. One said that this may be a doomsday weapon sent by one of the Earth's enemies, and to call Superman immediately. The other reiterated that Superman was away on a mission, but their computers had calculated where the capsule would land in the ocean. These men must be part of, or at least associated with, the U.S. government or military, because the other men stated that they were sending a carrier to pick up the capsule. On the next page, the jeweled capsule ejected a strange raft from its tip onto the surface of the Atlantic just before splashdown. An officer on the approaching naval carrier described the strange cushioning device as, quote, an upside-down parachute. The crew eventually hoisted the capsule from the waters and opened it. Strapped down within the crystalline shell was a humanoid man of average height in an outlandish costume that, again, resembled the reverse flash uniform. I detect some slight differences. The winged earpieces were missing. The lightning armbands were at the wrists instead of the forearms. There were no gloves, and the red lightning bolt symbol was replaced with a stylized black mallet. That is true, Lenos. And these incorrect costume details were also shown on the cover. At first, I thought that may have been an artistic error, but I also wondered if there would be some in-story reason why Reverse Flash, who undoubtedly used this capsule to travel from the 25th century, made these slight changes to his uniform. The naval officers noted that the man in yellow was in a coma and that they must try to revive him. As the World Press Services broadcast the news of the capsule landing, Daily Planet editor Perry White instructed Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen to use their helicopter to fly out to the carrier to get an on-the-spot story of the alien. They each grabbed a camera and were on their way. The next panel showed Jimmy Olsen, whom I did not know could fly a helicopter, actually lowering the craft onto the carrier flight deck, while Lois casually mentioned that they had received permission to land. In the next panel, Lois entered the sickbay, in which the man in yellow still lay comatose. A pair of doctors at a computer console stated that they would not know where the alien had come from until they revive him, but all known methods had failed. 
I should point out that the man in yellow laid on a weird padded mattress complete with pillow, held down by two metallic straps. The mattress and straps looked exactly the same as the ones from within the crystalline capsule when it was first opened three panels before. So it appeared that the soldiers had removed both the passenger and the mattress he was strapped to, and did not bother to remove the bonds. Perhaps they were unable to remove the bonds because they were made from a material from another world. Another world, or perhaps another time. I suspect they didn't want to take any chances. Seeing how this dude was strapped in tight, they probably wanted to keep him that way in case he wasn't friendly. Given my suspicions on who this person was, that would make sense. Back to the same panel, which was the final panel of page 3, by the way. Lois's first thoughts were about how handsome the alien looked, despite the yellow-hooded mask that covered most of his face. Heh, <laughs> sounds like Superman's girlfriend has a bit of a roving eye. Well, I had always seen the Lois-Superman relationship in the Silver Age to be very one-sided, with Lois pursuing Superman for the most part. Superman, to his credit, kept his distance in order to protect her from his many enemies that would think nothing of striking at Lois in order to get to Superman. Of course, for as long as I remember reading Superman comics, going after Lois was essentially on the to-do list of every Superman adversary regardless. Guilty as charged, Professor. Though it makes one wonder if old Soupy had a fear for Lois's safety, or just a flat-out fear of commitment. You're not the first to make that conjecture, Terraman, in jest or in earnest. In any case, despite Lois's strong push for a relationship, Superman's reluctance to reciprocate evidently left their relationship somewhat open. In fact, there had been stories in this Lois Lane series, as well as in Superman comics, in which Lois had dated or had been engaged to another man, and had even been married on a few occasions as well. I recall one such marriage was to a 23rd century being named Explom. This was in Superman Volume 1, Issue 136. Of course, that marriage did not last beyond that issue because of a horrifying effect that marriage would have on Lois. And the husband, well, perished. Another example was in issue 105 of Lois's title, in which she had married a convict on death row. That marriage also did not last beyond that single issue, because Lois married the man to repay him for saving her life years earlier, and there was really no romantic attachment. Oh, yes, and the husband, well, perished. I detect an intriguing pattern forming. I remember coming across them comics in your collection. Didn't Lois marry Batman and Lex Luthor as well? Well, those were imaginary stories that were not a part of the Earth-1 universe history. But back to this story. At the top of page 4, Superman suddenly flew into the sickbay and landed between Lois and the comatose man in yellow. He explained that he had just returned to Earth and heard about the stranger from space. Superman decided to help by quickly rebuilding one of the medical machines in the sickbay into a device he called a vitalizer. Superman explained that he has invented the vitalizer to bring the inhabitants of a sleeping world out of suspended animation, and that it would use the Man of Steel himself as a super battery to hopefully revive the stranger in yellow. Lois and the doctors could see Superman's powers surging into the yellow-clad man. There was a muscular reaction, and 
the experiment was a failure. The doctor with the stethoscope could detect only the faintest sign of life. Lois looked to be pleading to Superman, asking if there was any other way to wake up the stranger, but Superman was already taking off, saying there was no other way that he knew of and that he suddenly had to leave, quote, on an important mission, without providing any details. Ha! I expect Supi used that line every time he just wanted to get away. After the Man of Steel had left, Lois looked at the sleeping alien with pity and remarked how he was like a fairy tale sleeping prince waiting for a beautiful maiden to awaken him. I remember reading that fairy tale once, but I think it was a sleeping frog or some such. But I can guess where this is going. You are correct in your assumption, Terra Man. For the very next panel showed Lois bending over our reverse Flash-looking character and kissing him on the lips. The caption box makes a note that, quote, Lois forgets herself briefly, which I suppose was to explain that this act was really not a sign of disloyalty to her devotion to Superman. Perhaps. Meanwhile, Jimmy Olsen, who on the previous panel warned Lois not to get too carried away, snapped a photo of the kiss, saying it would make a great picture for the Daily Planet. Or maybe a blackmail scheme. Following a full-page ad for G.I. Joe action toys, the first panel of page 5 showed a dramatic close-up of the yellow-clad stranger waking up. Lois gasped in disbelief that her sleeping beauty routine actually worked. Who fastened me with these metal bonds? The yellow-clad stranger proclaimed in perfect English. Let me up. And with that, the alien sat up, snapping the steel clamps as if they were made of paper. Lois was sure this was proof that this stranger was a super-being from another planet. The stranger asked people in the sickbay where he was and how he had arrived there. Lois quickly answered that he was on Earth and arrived in a space capsule, and then was quick with a few questions of her own. Where did you learn to speak our language? Who are you? Where are you from? The alien kept his arms folded before him as he responded, Call me Hero. My origin must remain a secret for now. How did you awaken me? At this point, the doctor stepped forward and gestured to Lois, explaining that this young lady's kiss triggered Hero's revival, somehow. The alien smiled at Lois. Then I didn't dream that kiss, he said, grasping the camera which hung around Lois's neck. Let me show you my gratitude, lovely one. Oh, he is laying on the charm that thick, ain't he? Well, it seemed to be working, for Lois thought that the alien, to whom she referred to as a handsome dreamboat, quote, goes for her. She also presumed that he was going to use his alien science to make some innovative improvements to her camera. However, in the next panel, the camera suddenly melted to liquid in Hero's bare hand. Lois was aghast, and asked Hero if that was the way to show appreciation on his world. Jimmy Olsen, who evidently had some doubts despite seeing Hero break the metal straps earlier, exclaimed, He has a heat touch. This guy Hero really is super. Query, does Entity Reverse Flash possess this heat touch ability? Well, not exactly. But by vibrating his hands at super speed, the reverse flash could create extreme heat via friction to melt Lois's camera. Super speed vibrations could also weaken the integrity of metal straps, enough for Hero to break through them without requiring any super strength. 
What I could not explain at this point was why the Reverse Flash was employing an elaborate ruse to make people believe he was a superheroic alien from another planet. But I had only gone through four pages of the story so far, and I expected that answer to be revealed eventually. And getting back to the story, the crew of the carrier was alerted to a distress call from a freighter on fire, 50 miles to the east. The crew were abandoning ship, but it would take two hours for the carrier to reach the area to put out the fire. The freighter would surely be sunk by then. Lois turned to Hero, urging him to use his superpowers to go save the ship. Hero immediately gripped Lois lovingly by the shoulders. He agreed to go, but added that this beautiful one must come with him. Lois seemed to be swooning at the idea. Her thoughts stated that, after being essentially ignored by Superman, that she was thrilled by this Super Romeo giving her the rush act. Makes sense for the opposite Flash to scoot into court in that trap. Well, the rush act had suddenly taken on a completely different meaning, for Hero immediately grabbed Lois by the hair and sped off over the surface of the Atlantic toward the disaster area, pulling the intrepid reporter behind him as if she were a kite. Instead of continuously screaming in pain, like any other rational person would do while being dragged by the hair at hundreds of miles an hour, Lois simply gasped, wondering why Hero was treating her this way if he liked her. Turning the page, Lois then reasoned that this mistreatment may have been the custom on Hero's planet. As she had put it, perhaps a suitor had to act like a caveman when he courted a girl. Right... That makes a whole lot of sense. I surmise that Entity Lois Lane suffered no pain nor hair follicle damage due to the properties of Entity Flash's super speed aura, which protects himself or any entity he is carrying from the adverse effects of super speed travel, and which I surmise Entity Reverse Flash possessed as well. That is a safe assumption, Lanos. Although under further analysis, Entity Reverse Flash's aura was not quite the same as that of Entity Flash, which was a band of radiation created by the chemical accident that granted Entity Barry Allen his superspeed powers. Entity Reverse Flash, who derived his powers by amplifying the residual superspeed vibrations within one of Entity Flash's spare uniforms, originally devised a chemical coating to protect him from intense friction. This chemical coating had broken down in his first battle with Entity Flash, who then destroyed Entity Reverse Flash's uniform. Yes, which I found out later, once I acquired a copy of The Flash Volume 1, Issue 139, but we do not need to... Given that Entity Reverse Flash later restored his superspeed powers through the use of a radioactive substance he discovered called Element Z, it can be extrapolated that he now possessed a radioactive protective aura similar to Entity Flash. Uh, right, that is another safe assumption, Lenos. But let us get back to the story. Soon, the speeding duo arrived at the scene of the distressed ship. As Hero, uh, flashed by one of the life rafts, he brusquely dropped Lois into the water before streaking to the burning freighter. Lois was all confused, thinking how one minute Hero couldn't do without her, and then the next he dropped her like a hot potato. More like a hot tomato, hubba hubba. Mr. Manning, 
Evidently, Entity Hero was making sure Entity Lois Lane maintained a safe distance from the danger. It is very curious that Entity Hero did not simply deposit Entity Lois Lane into the life raft itself. Indeed, Lenos, but he did also pull Lois behind him like a kite for 50 miles, by her hair. Indeed. I should say that I particularly like how Kurt Schaffenberger laid out this panel. He brilliantly rendered Hero as a speed line that zipped across the panel to the freighter in the background, while Lois was unceremoniously dumped into the water in the foreground. In the next panel, as one freighter crewman pulled the ocean-soaked reporter onto their raft, Lois informed them that while this otherworldly being's super techniques are different than Superman's, Hero will save their vessel. And Hero's super technique in this case was indeed quite different. For instead of putting out the fire, Hero swam around the flaming vessel at super speed, creating a giant whirlpool that essentially sank the ship. Lois was perplexed as to why Hero sank the ship instead of saving it, but then a crewman told her that the ship had a cargo of munitions on board, which would have exploded and killed every living thing within miles. Which, according to my observation, would have been Entity Lois Lane, Entity Hero, and the entire freighter crew. Indeed, Lois looked completely enraptured as she watched Hero leap out of the water as the ship submerged. Then he really did save us all, she thought. What a man! Hero gave a wave to the raft. Mission accomplished, he began. Goodbye for now, Lois. I'll see you tomorrow. Lois shouted a goodbye and waved back, though she had thought Hero would have towed their life raft to the shore. She then reasoned that he must have had a vital task that was more urgent. And then Lois realized that Hero knew her name, though no one had actually told Hero what it was. With a heartfelt, and amorously goofy, expression on her face, which was wonderfully rendered by Kurt Schaffenberger, Lois fantasized that Hero must have had the means to monitor Earth from his world, and had been watching Lois from afar, and carried a torch for her for years. And apparently, in 1967, this stalking behavior was, quote, thrilling to her. Dragged by the har, dunked at sea, maybe been stalked for years. Apparently our so-called mystery man in Yeller can do no wrong in Miss Lane's mind. She's no doubt all soft down on this hero, hombre. I guess she and Supid do have a... open relationship, you called it? Well, yes. Despite what it says on the cover logo, Lois Lane was definitely open to dating and even marrying other people, albeit briefly, as we had mentioned earlier. And as we continue on page 8, panel 4 of this story, Lois and the crew are rescued and Jimmy Olsen is flying her back to the Daily Planet in their helicopter. Lois said that Hero was so mysterious and so different and could not wait to see him again. And this punctuated the fact that Lois was pining for a man whom she really knew nothing about. She seemed to be fascinated by Hero's handsome looks, and given the mask over his face, the looks were most likely his, well, heroic physique. She was also smitten by Hero's compliments to her, and by his heroic deed with the freighter. It was all essentially a superficial infatuation. Though I believe this was not just another example of the stereotypical portrayal of women in DC Comics of the 1960s, 
but also an example of the simplistic approach to romantic storylines in the Silver Age of DC comic superhero stories. I had found many male comic book characters that were enamored with the women in their Silver Age stories to be equally shallow, and sometimes just as unfaithful, for lack of a better word. Case in point, in Green Lantern, Volume 2, Issue 36, there was a story in which Hal Jordan was wooing Doreen Clay, a beautiful stranger he met on a weekend getaway, who had essentially resisted his charms. Even in this story, Hal admitted to himself that his heart still belonged to Carol Ferris, but he was still relentlessly pursuing Doreen just so he could prove to himself that he could make her fall for him. No! Oh, yes. Hal even stated at one point that he should not give up his pursuit of a woman with whom he had no intention of having a serious relationship, because that, quote, wouldn't be the old Green Lantern fighting spirit. Of course, because this was a Green Lantern story, Hal discovered that Doreen was in reality an alien named Ono Mortu from the planet Garon. She was hiding on Earth to perfect a device that would release her people from the hypnotic enslavement of a class of beings from her world called the Headman. So she had no time for a romantic tryst on her hideaway planet. After Green Lantern chased off her Headman pursuers and helped Onu safely leave Earth so she could free her people, Onu had left a letter for Hal Jordan from Doreen, stating that he had won her heart which I am sure did wonders for Green Lantern's male ego. I'd say that low-down womanizer was lucky that Doreen or Onu left once he made a mash on her. I bet she'd be mad as a hornet if she found out he was stringing her along. I would like to think she had found this out eventually at some point, after the love-struck Onu had encountered Green Lantern again in the 1980s. This happened during Hal Jordan's exile from Earth, in a number of stories between Green Lantern Volume 2, Issues 160 and 171. Unfortunately, on panel it appeared that Hal was still heartlessly stringing her along, as you would put it. While Doreen was pining for him, Hal presumably kept the relationship platonic. And then, in Issue 172, Hal Jordan returned to Earth and to Carol Ferris, while Onu, or Doreen as she preferred to be called, was never seen nor mentioned again. I presume she went back to her people, who were residing on and rebuilding Evil Star's devastated planet. I bet she did, right after giving Gigolo Jordan a sweet in the face when she found out he had a lady friend waiting for him on Earth. I can picture that, sir, but we digress. Why don't we take a podcast promo break, and then we will get back to the story in Superman's Girlfriend, Lois Lane, issue 74. romance comics podcast in which four guys talk about romance comics and about romances in comics with Siskoid. We're all uh, French Canadians here. Marty. In horror comics, there's often like this little, you know, <laughs> romance tinge, I guess. Okay. Bass. We oh, just yeah. turned on him. <laughs> and yours truly, Fern. I'm very aroused. Featuring the overproduced wonder that is romance comics theater every episode. Dan, I knew it couldn't last from the first day you eyeballed me when I reported to work. It wouldn't matter if I washed in laundry soap and came to work in a burlap sack. I'd turn you on. And you have the same effect on me. I... 
I do. The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, available on iTunes. We've had a comic book Attention all personnel. New from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, it's MASHCAST. Hosted by MASH megafan Rob Kelly and a rotating cast of VIPs, MASHCAST analyzes episode by episode the greatest television series of all time, MASH. Find MASHCAST on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Jocularity! Jocularity! Welcome back to the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show and our review of the main story in Superman's Girlfriend, Lois Lane, Issue 74, Superman's Unbeatable Rival. In the first seven and a half pages, we saw Superman away on a mission with the Justice League deep in outer space, while a mysterious space capsule crash-landed in the Atlantic Ocean. A military carrier crew discovered a comatose man within the capsule, a man who was dressed in a yellow and red costume that somewhat resembled that of the villainous Reverse Flash. Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen traveled to the carrier to cover the news story for the Daily Planet. Superman eventually arrived as well to assist in the Doctor's efforts to revive the space capsule occupant, to no avail. Superman had to immediately depart on another mission. Meanwhile, Entity Lois Lane who was attracted to the handsome, although masked, male entity in yellow, impulsively kissed the sleeping stranger, which actually woke him. The male entity in yellow introduced himself with the designation Hero, but revealed very little else about himself. Though he had demonstrated perfect fluency of English as well as abilities that resembled super strength and a heat touch, However, Entity Zoom Yuganori believed these were actually applications of a super-speed power like that of Entity Reverse Flash. When the carrier received a distress call from a freighter all ablaze 50 miles away, Hero took off like a six-shooter horse to the disaster area to help. While doing a little kite flying with Lois on the way, a hee-hee! However, instead of putting the fire out, Hero used his powers to dun-sink the ship. At first I thought his knife was a little too dull to even cut hot butter, but it turned out Hero actually kept the fire from igniting the munitions cargo and saved the lives of Lois and the freighter crew. With his mission done, Hero up and left Lois and the crew in their life rafts to be picked up by the carrier, but also said he'd pay a call on Lois the next day, if you know what I mean. And it was remiss of me to not point out the clever artwork of the late, great Kurt Schaffenberger in this story. Mr. Schaffenberger is another one of those longtime stalwart comic book artists that I believe had been criminally underrated by the comic book fans of today, most likely because his clean and, well, wholesome cartoony style may not be as flashy as Neil Adams or George Perez or Alan Davis or Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. 
Mr. Schaffenberger's art style had hardly changed from this 1967 Lois Lane comic book to his later work in Superman Family Features and the New Adventures of Superboy series in the 1980s. But then it really didn't need to. His work was solid, his main characters were distinctive and recognizable, and the facial expressions conveyed each character's emotions brilliantly particularly that love-struck look on Lois's face on page 8 when she realized Hero had always known her name. It is no wonder that Mr. Schaffenberger was credited for creating the definitive look of Lois Lane in the 1960s. In addition to the characters, all of the backgrounds and vehicles, especially the aircraft carrier and the ocean freighter, were quite realistic. While his art appears clean and simplistic, Mr. Schaffenberger adds all of the necessary details to tell the story, and I was amazed to discover some details that I had initially overlooked in my first reading, on which I will elaborate more when we get further into the story. First, I should say that the storytelling craft on page 4, as Superman and the Doctors tried to revive Hero, and the quiet scene of Hero rewarding Lois on page 5, and especially the freighter plight and rescue on pages 6, 7, and 8, paying particular note to the epic panel on page 7 where Hero sinks the burning ship in a super-speed whirlpool. It was all simply brilliant. Most Silver Age DC comic stories created at this time tended to rely almost as much on the captions and dialogue as well as the artwork to tell the story, and while some lines in the script were vital for me to get a full understanding, I can take all of the words out of these five Lois Lane pages I had just mentioned and still get a strong sense of what was happening in the story just by looking at the pictures alone. And speaking of pages, we had left off on the fifth panel of page eight, which had taken place the following day at Lois Lane's desk at the Daily Planet. Lois rested her head in one hand as she sat impatient at her desk, pouting at her wristwatch. Lana Lang lurched over Lois's desk, equally impatient. Lana was scheduled to make a TV newscast and was no doubt running late, because she just had to meet this new super-admirer of Lois's. But where can he be? Lois sighed. Hero said he'd visit me today, and the day is almost over. In the background, Clark Kent was donning his hat as he prepared to leave the office for the day. On his way out, he warned Lois to... Quote, not go overboard for this other world character. Clark added that, as we had pointed out earlier in the podcast, Lois really knew nothing about him. Lois, in stereotypical 1960s media fashion, preened her hair and tossed Clark a mildly playful look. Why, Clark, I do believe you're jealous, she replied. Lois then flashed a wicked smile as she cradled her chin on her hands. I bet Superman will be jealous too, she said, when he hears how Hero cares for me. Oh, was that what all this fawning over Hero was about? Inducing jealousy to get Superman's attention? Oh, Lois, you're so stereotypically shrewd and manipulative. Well, Clark Kent simply smirked a little as he continued to leave, thinking that Lois, of course, had no idea that Clark was Superman and he did not dare tell Lois his suspicions about Hero. And that made sense while he was in his guise as Clark Kent. However, I think it was more that super dickery doc. I mean, professor. 
I see why you would think so, Terraman. Because, as you all know, I had suspected Hero to really be the ruthless reverse Flash manipulating Lois in some bizarre scheme to get to Superman. And if Superman had the same suspicion, why would he keep that a secret for so long? Besides the obvious one to prolong the story, of course. We had just finished the first panel of page 9, by the way. And in panel 2, Hero suddenly entered the Daily Planet office by passing through the wall like a ghost, waving a hello to Lois. The intrepid reporter was impressed, for Hero had an ability even Superman could not match. Lana was also impressed and complimented Hero's masked face to be as handsome as a movie star. After introductions were made to Lana between panels, Hero suggested that he and Lois celebrate their new friendship by having dinner together. Oh, this polecat is really smooth with the lines, ain't he? He even got Lois to sport her Sunday face. Uh, hmm. While Lois went to get her hat and coat from the cloakroom, the phone at Lois's desk began to ring, and Hero, for some inexplicable reason, answered the call. Hello? What? A news tip for Clark Kent or Lois Lane? Wait, let me jot down the information. And Hero did so on the notepad on Lois's desk. Lana Lang immediately caressed Hero's face and asked him what the news tip was, saying that he could tell her since she was introduced as Lois's friend. So Hero did so. Oh, that Lana. So stereotypically cunning and manipulative. Hero told Lana that an escaped convict named Chopper Blade, I love the name by the way, was hiding in a cave inside a park at 66th Street and 9th Avenue. Of course, Lois returned just in time to hear this exchange. Eager for a newsbeat, Lana hurried out to 66th and 9th, and Lois marched right up to Hero and smacked him on the face, angry that Hero would hand her exclusive news scoop to Lana. And at the top of page 10, Hero initially reacts to the slap by, well, going all Ralph Cramden on Lois. He lunged at Lois angrily. You dare strike me? Well, I oughta. Lois recoiled in terror, thinking that she had, quote, gone too far with that slap, and that the look in Hero's eyes made him seem ready to kill her. But in the next panel, Hero was instead kissing Lois quite passionately. Well, I'm not one to judge a man based on how he gets his jollies, but I... Query, is this the actual meaning of the recurring line by Entity Ralph Cramden? Pow, right in the kisser? No, it is not, Lanos. That line was actually a threat of physical violence. To be blunt, a punch in the mouth. And while this comic book came out almost a decade after Jackie Gleason popularized this running gag in the Honeymooners program... Television shows like The Honeymooners no doubt helped perpetuate the notion that corporal punishment, typically a man punishing his wife, was either considered normal or, worse, something to be expected in a married relationship, even though it really wasn't. Even in the unmarried relationship of Superman and Lois Lane, I recall that there had been a number of letters printed in the letter column of Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane that suggested Superman actually give Lois Lane a, quote, well-deserved spanking as punishment for her trying to snoop into his secret identity or whatnot. 
Whether these were actual letters written by readers or fabricated by editorial is up for debate, but at any rate, these were, again, printed in comic books intended for impressionable young children. Speaking of which, Lois Lane actually got a whooping from a Superman robot while poking around some areas of Superman's Fortress of Solitude where she shouldn't have gone. That is true. This happened in Superman's Girlfriend Lois Lane issue 14. This occurrence was essentially played for laughs, though I do not think that humor would play the same today. Again, this was all during a time when domestic violence was just beginning to be recognized as a social issue in American society, and was unfortunately a very hidden problem when it wasn't being viewed as a joke. I do believe that the public perception of domestic violence had progressed somewhat in the last 50 years, and I would like to think the old bang-zoom humor would not hold today. However, to be honest, I also feel we still have a long way to go to address this problem. But back to this story. Lois was surprised that instead of murdering her, Hero was kissing her. She felt that Hero, quote, loved her with every fiber of his being. So why did he betray her by passing her news scoop to Lana Lang? The next panel then showed the actual words Hero had jotted down on Lois's notepad, which was different than what Hero told Lana on the previous page. Lana was told Chopper Blade was hiding in a cave inside a park at 66th Street and 9th Avenue, but the notes said that the park was on 99th Street and 6th Avenue. Lois realized that Hero was actually helping Lois by tricking that foxy Lana and I presume she apologized for slapping Hero before they both had taken off in the Daily Planet helicopter, which Lois called the Flying Newsroom, to head to Chopper Blade's hideout. Why didn't Hero just speed her over thar? Lois stated that Lana might have suspected she was tricked, and thus may have been watching for them to leave the Daily Planet building and follow them to the actual location. At super speed? I see where you're going with this, Terraman. I actually suspect that Lois did not want to have another hair-pulling experience like she had on pages 6 and 7. At any rate, we are still on page 10 as Lois and Hero arrive at the city park and find the cave, which has a boulder sealing the entrance. But that did not stop Hero, who boasted about his ability to walk through any barrier as he was doing so with said boulder. In the next panel, within the cave, we met Chopper Blade, a bald, aged man wearing a purple prison uniform, as he pointed his 1920s-style Tommy gun at Hero, who was emerging from the other side of the boulder. I am here to arrest you, evildoer, Hero proclaimed to the startled convict. Turning to page 11, the convict recovered from the initial shock. They don't call me Chopper for nothing, he sneered as he fired a rapid volley of bullets at Hero. No one's taken me back to the pen. I would have expected Entity Chopper Blade to use a kitchen cleaver as his principal weapon, rather than a John T. Thompson submachine gun. Either that or a helicopter rotor. The term Chopper was one of the nicknames for that type of gun, Lenos, as Mr. Blade demonstrated, and very droll, Taraban. Of course, the bullets passed through Hero as if he were a ghost, so Chopper made a break for it, 
somehow bypassing Hero to press a button on a control panel on the cave wall, which enabled the boulder to slide to one side and open the exit from the cave. Chopper also noted to himself, and to the reader, that this, quote, old security system in the hideout had just enough power to open that massive door one more time. This would be an important point in a moment. Chopper fled into the park and apparently ran past Lois, who congratulated Hero for drawing the fugitive out into the open and immediately told the yellow-clad speedster to grab him. However, Lois was surprised by Hero grabbing her instead and throwing her into the cave as the boulder door, which had only enough power to be opened that one time, slammed shut. And even if there was still some power, Lois noted that the impact of the door slam had smashed the wall controls. So Lois was essentially trapped inside. Her feelings of confusion fell away to panic as she frantically pounded on the boulder that blocked the exit, calling for Hero to let her out. But Hero did not respond. Lois was certain that she would never get out alive just as Superman entered the cave in his typical wall-smashing fashion. The Man of Steel told Lois that he had kept an eye on her ever since Clark Kent told him about her new super-boyfriend. Huh, definitely an open relationship. A page turn later, Superman finally offered to warn Lois about what he suspected about Hero, but Lois interrupted the Man of Steel and offered her own theory that something in the Earth's environment had confused his alien mind. Leaving the cave through the hole, Lois saw Chopper Blade, who she reasoned must have escaped from Hero somehow, heading for the Daily Planet helicopter to escape. Of course, Lois said all of this out loud in expository dialogue to Superman, which made Chopper turn his, well, Chopper, toward her. As the stream of bullets narrowly miss our plucky reporter, Hero emerged from literally out of nowhere to protect her from Chopper, Lois had thought, However, in the next panel, Hero streaked behind Lois and grabbed her by the shoulders, holding her in Chopper's line of fire. As Chopper prepared to pull the trigger again, Superman, who had pretty much been just standing around in the background all the while, finally thought, Oh-oh, I should have expected something like this. Got to move at lightning speed. And with that, Superman quickly leapt over to Chopper and knocked him out with a light tap to the jaw. Superman then turned toward Hero, who was still restraining the struggling Lois. Superman told Hero that his X-ray vision had just confirmed his origin and identity, and that he had better forget about being Lois's suitor. She's mine, Hero declared, sounding more riotous by the second. Try to take her from me and I'll fight you to the finish. And now the battle ensued between Superman and whom I was now sure was the Reverse Flash. I had reasoned that the Reverse Flash had intentionally put Lois Lane in danger in order to lure Superman out and goad him into a fight, and all that made sense to me at the time because I was ten. The fight essentially transpired over the first three panels on page 13. The first panel was essentially a recreation of the cover, with Superman's punch passing through Hero's gut, while Lois looked on from a tree. She thought that she should be flattered having two superheroes fighting over her, but she was actually frightened by the whole ordeal. As any rational human being ought to be. Indeed. 
In the second panel, Hero swung his fist and missed Superman, and yet that weird punch somehow hurled Superman's invulnerable body into another tree, cracking it in two. In the third panel, Superman had recovered and had Hero in a grapple hold. Hero raised his glowing right fist, with the caption stating he was about to use his heat-touch power on the Man of Steel, when suddenly Lois learned the horrible truth about Hero. I said, when suddenly Lois learned the horrible truth about Hero. Grundy, that was the cue. Solomon Grundy, here cue from Little Professor Man. So Grundy told him to come into studio right away, but he just keeps sitting in living room tearing up coffee table magazines. He is... oh right. Grundy, please tell him to stay out there in the living room and to not come in. But he's already staying out there. I know. Tell him to continue staying out there. Trust me. Okay. Grundy will also share skin moisturizing tips. He can sure use them. Now then, we were at the part when suddenly Lois learned the horrible truth about Hero. For the yellow-suited man's hands started hey, to change into a hand similar to that of a... What the Sam Hill? Goodbye, me am Bizarro. Me am very sad to leave here. Me hope me spoil surprise beginning, haha. Busy what now? Welcome, Bizarro. I am so glad that you had... Hmm? Zoom not want Bizarro? What Bizarro do wrong? Oh, right. Sorry. Um, not sorry. Unwelcome you are, Bizarro. Very sad you join us. Oh, haha. Zoom am still learning Bizarro language. It am very bad attempt. It does me great shame. It am very impolite of you. Indeed, uh, not. Haha, very bad, Zoom. Very bad, indeed. Not. Ha ha ha. Me hate you very much. Ha ha ha. No, no. Why Bizarro use door to exit? He didn't use the door. And now it got me another wall to fix up. Earlier, not Bizarro Grundy say me go through door to studio. So when Grundy say me stay... Okay, that's it. Can somebody start talking some sense around here? And who is this jagged-faced idiot and why is he dressed like a mirror Superman? Bizarro am Bizarro. Me no Superman. Superman am me worst friend. Not you, you chalk-faced. Okay. Me and Bizarro from Bizarro World, where us am... I said, not... Please do go on, Bizarro. Lenos. Greetings and salutations. I am Lenos, the lingering appetence measured by eating an onion. How may I serve you today? Lingering ap... Lenos, what? I was simply verifying whether you entities are paying attention, and to gauge the extent that nonsensical phrases irritate Entity Terraman. Just you wait till the mics are off, you monkey and mounted dice reject, and you'll find out just how irritating I am. Ho ho, bizarro like how Zoom podcasters am very friendly. Simmer down a spell there, Terraman. Lenos, please explain our new guest to Mr. Manning and the listeners, if you please. Commencing the abridged recapitulation of the Bizarro and Bizarro World entries from Who's Who, the definitive directory of the DC Universe, Volume 2, pages 22 and 23. Plotting to defeat Superman with a superpower duplicate, 
criminal mastermind Lex Luthor reconstructed the duplicator ray invented by one Professor Dalton, which had briefly created an imperfect duplicate of Superboy. Luring Superman in front of the ray, Luthor created an imperfect duplicate, which roughly resembled the Man of Steel and possessed all of his powers, but unfortunately shared none of Superman's mental capacity. Composed of lifeless matter, this duplicate also shared Superman's memory, but in a distorted manner. Luthor dubbed this pathetic creature Bizarro. Not understanding his Frankenstein-like appearance, Bizarro searched the world for acceptance, falling in love with Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, in the process. Appreciating Bizarro's plight, but not wanting to encourage his affection, Lois shrewdly used the duplicator ray to create an imperfect duplicate of herself. Bizarro and Bizarro Lois ultimately left Earth in search of their destiny, and searched the depths of the galaxy until they found a deserted world that met their twisted, illogical needs. The two settled on the planet, but soon realized they were alone, a misshapen Adam and Eve on a world they never made. Bored and desiring company, Bizarro Number 1 built an imitation ray based on Professor Dalton's duplicator ray, which Bizarro Number 1 and Bizarro Lois Number 1 used on themselves. They soon populated the world with more Bizarro Superman and Loises, and then aimed the imitation ray toward Earth to create more Bizarro duplicates of such people as Jimmy Olsen, Perry White, Lana Lang, Crypto, and Mr. Mixes Pitalik. The main city on this world is Bizarro City, a distorted version of Superman's home city of Metropolis. Life there is a funhouse mirror version of life on the real Earth. People enjoy eating cold dogs, watching film negatives instead of movies, and take their vacations by working harder than usual. The Bizarro World is a square planet reshaped by Superman himself on the first of his many visits to his imperfect counterpart. Due to their distorted thinking, the Bizarros have dedicated themselves to a way of life in which they think and act in a manner opposite to that of Earth people. To this end, they created the Bizarro Code. Us do opposite of all earthly things. Us hate beauty. Us love ugliness. Is big crime to make anything perfect on Bizarro World. Thank you, Lenos. That Who's Who entry recap essentially summarized the stories that had first introduced Bizarro in Action Comics Volume 1, Issues 254 and 255, as well as Bizarro World, which first appeared in Action Comics Volume 1, Issues 263 and 264. Now, Bizarro, I should probably translate some of this for... I mean, Professor Zoom am now explain that Bizarro am not... Professor Zoom, no worry. Bizarro no follow along with what none of you say. No translation am not needed. Ah, well, that's convenient. And very good to know. That will also save us quite a bit of time. You am welcome, Bizarro. Thank you. I'm confused. Does this mean we need to re-speak everything in this Bizarro language or not? We do not, Terraman. Unless we are asking Bizarro a direct question, or need to instruct him to do something, or when he asks for clarification, 
We should be able to converse as we normally do, and Bizarro should follow along. However, when Bizarro is speaking to us, we will need to translate what he says to the opposite meaning. Well, somewhat the opposite. Not necessarily every word. I will admit that I do not have all of the patterns down, but if we use his vocal inflections as a guide, we should be able to... I'm just going to leave it to you, Professor. So there's this whole planet full of creatures like this here Yahoo. And it's a square yet? A cube, yes. As you can see here on page 13 in Superman's Girlfriend Lois Lane issue 74, which was the point in the story in which Hero finally explained his backstory to Lois Lane and Superman. He stated that everyone on Bizarro World was an imperfect duplicate of Superman or one of his friends. And in a very humorous panel, we saw how the Bizarros would do things the opposite of the way things were done on Earth, as a Bizarro Superman with a makeshift policeman's cap and nightstick apprehended a Bizarro duplicate of Perry White as he dropped some trash in a crooked waste bin. The Bizarro officer said, quote, Me catch you not littering street. For that, city will pay you fine of six lumps of coal. The Bizarro Perry White angrily responded, you can't do that. Me will complain to top man in City Hall, the janitor. Oh boy howdy. Janitor am third most powerful Bizarro on Bizarro World. After me, Bizarro number one. Wait, that means you're second in command? Uh, who am top Bizarro? Bizarro Lois number one, of course. Of course. Back to the story. On the next page, Hero explained that Bizarro wanted to create his own Justice League. Haha, <laughs> that am right. When Bizarro see on imperfect duplicator ray scanner that Superman and Batman leave Earth on space mission, me decide to help by creating Bizarro Batman with imitating ray. Then fly to Earth to take them place and undo their terrible good deeds while they am gone. Us help still when they come back. But then Superman and Batman go to Bizarro World and bring ruin by straightening buildings and streets. Us chase them off and stay on Bizarro World. Stand guard so they no do awful things again. Podcast host and audio editor's note. In his own inimitable fashion, Bizarro is referring to events that had transpired in World's Finest Comics Volume 1, Issue 156. Bizarro and Daylight Detective am good guards. But Bizarro in Justice League be even better guards, and do bad deeds on Bizarro World. I think I get it now. So this hero was actually a Bizarro duplicate of the Flash. That is correct. As we see on page 14, panel 1, Bizarro's imitation ray scanner was monitoring the Justice League peace treaty meeting that we had witnessed on page 2, and they fired the imitating ray at Flash as he raised the gavel in front of him to declare Superman out of order. But duplicator not always work wrong. Bizarro Flash had imperfect costume. Even chess symbol have image of gavel instead of lightning. But Bizarro Flash face and voice am perfect. Him am disgusting freak. Bizarro Batman say us get rid of him. So us place Bizarro Flash in space capsule in orbit around Bizarro World. Us give him suspended animation drug to keep him asleep so him not need food. Wait, don't you mean Rocket Bizarro Flash away? I thought Bizarro Bat Ombre said to get rid of him. 
Right, us get rid of him because us know what happened. Bizarro Flash Ugly Face eventually turn into Handsome Bizarro Face. Imperfect Duplicator Ray create Imperfect Perfect Duplicate before. That is right. I remember in Superman's Girlfriend Lois Lane issue 32, an attempt to make another Bizarro Duplicate of Superman with your imitation ray somehow created a perfect duplicate of Superman, who traveled to Earth and proposed to Lois Lane, claiming to be the true Man of Steel. Haha. <laughs> But at beginning of wedding ceremony, as groom about to kiss bride, he turned into beautiful Bizarro self. Just like how Bizarro babies are born. Ugh, as perfect looking freaks. But eventually turn into normal Bizarro children. Am good thing. Podcast host and audio editor's note. This interesting factoid about Bizarro, um, procreation, was first revealed in Superman Volume 1, Issue 140. At any rate, Terraman, when Bizarro Batman said to get rid of the duplicate Flash, he really meant to get him out of sight in an orbiting space capsule until he changed into a normal Bizarro Flash, which was what was happening to Hero, for his hands now had a chiseled white appearance. But like everything Bizarros produce, the space capsule was imperfect, so instead of orbiting Bizarro World, it traveled to Earth instead. And just like how the perfect-looking Bizarro Superman in Superman's Girlfriend Lois Lane issue 32 acted like the real Superman on Earth, so too did our imperfect Flash try to act as the actual Flash would and be a superhero. Superman pointed out that while Hero's face was perfect, his mind was not, and that it was Hero's backward Bizarro thinking that tipped Superman off to Hero's true nature. Lois, of course, immediately reiterated all of the Bizarro-like actions she herself observed. Hero had sunk a ship that he was called to save, he reversed the sixes and nines in the address he gave to Lana Lang, and he mistreated Lois to show love and kissed her to display anger. I like the furrowed brow on the lady's face thar as she said that. The face when she realized she kissed a Bizarro. The top of page 15 summarized how Hero was able to pull off his super feats using Flash's super speed powers, as we had discussed earlier regarding to Hero breaking the metal straps and melting Lois's camera. And of course we all know the Flash could vibrate his body to loosen his molecular structure to pass through solid objects like a ghost. Lois also explained the mystery behind the weird remote punch that knocks Superman into a tree on page 13. Hero actually hit him with a blast of compressed air that was agitated by the super speed punch to knock Superman back with pile driver force. And of course there was an additional bizarro clue that Lois did not see herself but the readers did. The upside down parachute for the space capsule shown on page 3 panel 1. The only thing that Lois could not figure out was how her Sleeping Beauty kiss had awakened Hero from the Bizarro's suspended animation drug, where Superman's vitalizer machine had failed. Hero used his Bizarro white hands to open a secret panel in his red lightning belt, explaining that it wasn't the kiss that woke him up, but the fact that Lois's camera touched off his belt's duplicate Justice League signal device. The sound of the signal triggered Hero's flash memories and revived him. Ah, so that explains how Hero knew Lois's name, since the Flash would know Lois through Superman. Indeed, 
And sure enough, my ten-year-old self immediately turned back to the kissing panel on page four. And not only was Lois's camera resting on the lightning belt, but there were radiating lines beneath the camera to denote the signal device going off. This was a brilliantly sly detail by Kurt Schaffenberger that I had initially missed during my first read-through. Query. If this bizarro duplicate has all of the real Entity Flash's memories, why would he begin a courtship with Entity Lois Lane? Was not Entity Flash, Entity Barry Allen, married to Entity Iris West at the time of the bizarro duplication? Why, yes, the actual Flash was indeed a recent newlywed, for about six months by the time this comic book was on sale. But as Superman and Lois had stated, Hero still had a bizarro backward mindset. And the opposite of fidelity is philandery. Obviously the Flash took a shine to pretty reporter ladies. Well, this particular reporter would not be considered pretty to this duplicate Flash for long. For on page 15, panel 3, Hero completed his transformation into the bizarro Flash who now saw the fetching Lois Lane as hideously ugly. Not being able to stand the sight of the, quote, girl monstrosity, Bizarro Flash took off to find his space capsule to go back to Bizarro World and the beautiful Bizarro ladies there, most of whom were Bizarro duplicates of Lois Lane, so... So I reckon there'll be a whole lot of super speed sparrow catching going on. I like how that panel there showed how the Bizarro Flash lit a shuck for his capsule hindside first. Yes, and for the sake of brevity, Lois stated that Bizarro Flash will eventually retrace his steps back to the capsule, which I believe was still on that aircraft carrier in the Atlantic Ocean, and return back to Bizarro World on his own. So she simply asked Superman to take her home. And in the final panel of page 15, as Superman began to lift Lois into the sky, Lois's hands encircled the Man of Steel's neck as she stated that from now on, the only hero for her would be Superman. And that was the end of Superman's Unbeatable Rival, from Superman's Girlfriend Lois Lane, issue 74. Again, this story had definitely showed its age with its 1960s stereotypical views of Lois Lane and women in general. What do you mean? What was wrong with it? Bizarro hates story very much. Lois much unlike me, Bizarro Lois. Solomon Grundy think Lois Lane is hot potato. Hubba hubba. Uh-huh. I had forgotten that I am podcasting with old school comic book characters. But let us put these stereotypes aside, recognizing them as an unfortunate product of both its time and likely the editorial direction of Mort Weisinger. So putting that aside, to summarize, this 15-page story was charmingly ridiculous Silver Age fun all the way through. It also had quite a lot going on, from Superman and the Justice League's mission in space, to the arrival and revival of the mysterious hero, the rather epic non-rescue of the fiery freighter, the pursuit of the brilliantly named Chopper Blade, the brief fight between Hero and Superman, and of course the big mystery of Hero's true identity, which was a reveal I did not expect even though several clues were cleverly set throughout the story. And there were also the hilarious scenes with both Hero's bizarro behavior and the bizarros themselves, especially the scene with the Bizarro Copper arresting Litterbug Bizarro Perry White, 
and the panel in which the fully transformed Bizarro Flash had beat a hasty retreat from the ugly Lois Lane by running backwards. And the clean, quality linework of Kurt Schaffenberger's art was packed with solid storytelling. Being published in the late 1960s, the art style was not overly flashy and was pretty much standard old-school Silver Age. Most panels used a mid-level camera angle, and almost every page followed a static six-panel grid. And yet, both the action and quiet scenes were both dynamic and dramatic, with just the right level of detail and character expression that, again, were able to convey much of the story without my needing to read the clever script. And did I mention the Bizarros? Goodbye. They were always a welcome joy. My ten-year-old self was not even disappointed that the reverse flash was not actually in this story. Grundy understand how easy it is to think Yellow Hero Man was reverse flash. In fact, Lamo Computer... Oh yeah, very, very easy. Uh, don't you think we ought to skeedaddle on downstairs for the... Oh, yes, of course. And while we do that, we shall take another podcast promo break. And when we return, we'll pay a visit to the Done in One Wonders electronic mailroom. Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, Shaman's Tears, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. We hope you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in the many excellent comics from writer and artist Mike Grell. Warlord Worlds is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Find us at warlordworlds.com. Beginning in 2018, the Who's Who podcast enters the 1990s with our coverage of the Loose Leaf Editions. Featuring Superman by Jerry Ordway. The Joker by Brian Bolland. Wonder Woman by George Perez. Sandman by Mike Dringenberg. Batman by Norm Brayfogle. The JLI by Adam Hughes. Eclipso by Bart Sears. The Legion of Superheroes by Keith Giffen. Dark Stars by Travis Charest. Lobo by Simon Bisley. Kent Shakespeare by Chris Sprouse? Who is that? Doomsday by Tom Grummet. Wait, are we covering these by issue or in alphabetical order? The Justice Society of America by Mike Parabek. The Forever People again? You are fucking kidding me. Doom Patrol by Richard Case. <sighs> I'm so confused. And many more. The Who's Who Podcast, going boldly into the 90s. A proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I guess. Deep within the basement of a single-story suburban home in the outskirts of Daly City, California, the unabashedly conceited Professor Zoom took pity on classic DC comic book characters who found themselves out of work in the aftermath of one reality-altering crisis after another. So he gave them all jobs, 
in the Done and One Wonders electronic mailroom. Entity Zoom Yukonori, I have detected our first iTunes review for the Done and One Wonders podcast wonder show, and it is five stars. Wow, that is great news, Lenos. That can help get the show and the network noticed. Transcribing iTunes review from member identification handle DS and RS, whom I have identified as Entity Darren Sutherland and Entity Ruth Sutherland. Subject, a wonder indeed. Bizarro, as this episode's guest of dishonor, would you do me the dishonor of not reading this iTunes review? I don't think that's a good idea. Haha, <laughs> not good idea indeed. Bizarro, read now. Professor Zoom's done in one wonders and no wonder itself. In podcast, Professor Zoom not cover unimportant single-issue comic story with vague summary and imprecise review. He also fill podcast with awful sound effects and caricature comic voice guests. Production values am low and show am inconsistently boring and uninformative. Lowly recommended. That not what iTunes review say. I told you that was a bad idea. Bad idea, so Bizarro do really bad job. Indeed so, er, not. You're welcome, Bizarro. Thank you. This spoozy Superman will only be here for this episode, right? I don't think I got enough Fluvian Lasma root extract for the headache he'll be if he joins the Zoom crew. Grande say listeners should go to iTunes link in show notes and read real review for themselves. Maybe while there, they leave an iTunes review of their own. An excellent idea, Entity Grundy. And there is a 99.7% probability that was Entity Zoom Yukonori's plan all along. You sly dog. I knew you had to be smarter than you just were, Professor. Thank you, Terraman. I think. And my thanks to you, Darren and Ruth, for your very kind five-star review. And I hope you will forgive the madness behind this method. Please keep us informed on any further iTunes reviews, Lenos. In the meantime, please access all email and voicemails in response to our third episode. Accessing Files Located zero email responses and one voicemail response to the Done and One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show Episode 3. He was zombie when zombie wasn't cool. Thank you, Lenos. Proceed. Accessing one voicemail response received on January 8th, 2018 at 23.03 Coordinated Universal Time. Hello, Professor Zoom and the Zoom crew. This is Ward Hill Terry calling you, thanking you for another wonderful episode of the Dundon One Wonder Podcast. I especially like in this episode uh, how you managed to look through Solomon Grundy's history and try to piece it together to make sense of the wonderful nonsense we enjoy in the story. And on the praise you gave, of course, to JLGL, PBHN. Praise be his name. And thank you for at least diminishing the sounds of the uh, computer apparatus you have in the background. It was well, not nearly as uh, disruptive as it was earlier. And I think you found a very good level for that. So keep up the great work. My best to Terra Man and Grundy. And maybe... Um, we can get together with Chris Franklin and find uh, Grundy, 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 other Grundy, and Kentucky Grundy. Thanks again, Zoom. Bye-bye. Solomon Grundy life story is indeed wonderful nonsense. Grundy happy Ward Hill Terry enjoy Grundy's story. Indeed. 
Thank you for the kind words, Mr. Terry. Grundy thought Grundy was Grundy Grundy, which was other Grundy that other Grundy had been searching for. That not make sense to Bizarro. That don't make any sense to me either. Haha, <laughs> must not make sense to Bizarro. Otherwise all Bizarro supermen on Bizarro world not confuse themselves with each other. <sighs> but who is Kentucky Grundy? Grundy, Kentucky, a populated place in Pulaski County, located at 37.126195 latitude, negative 84.5221627 lunge. Is that where Chris Franklin has his other Grundy? Insufficient data. Is Grundy, Kentucky considered out in the sticks? How's about we move on to the feedback we had received on the Fire and Water podcast website? I think there was a comment by our esteemed Mr. Franklin that might help clear this up. Located 13 responses from 11 listeners of the Dunn and One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show Episode 3. He was zombie when zombie wasn't cool. The first response is from a Clinton Robinson, and he wrote, Another excellent episode, Zoom. Your shows are always so well-researched and informative. It's almost like having our own section of a DC encyclopedia to listen to each episode. So glad to have a Solomon Grundy story covered, as he's easily one of my favorite characters in all of DC. Solomon Grundy liked Clinton Robinson for his exceptional taste in DC characters. He also said, Thanks very much for giving the legal information regarding libel and slander. Amazing how easily people can get those two mixed up. You are quite welcome, but be advised that all information of law from the Dun and One Wonders podcast Wonder Show is comprised of media featuring Perry Mason, Ben Matlock, and John Munch, and is provided for quasi-educational purposes only, and should never be considered as legal advice. Old Clinton also wrote, I absolutely love that praise be his name was said in unison by the assembled hosts. Do Terror Man and Grundy have to report for chant practice every day, or is that a secret superpower they both share? Chant practice? It was actually just practice, and even with rehearsals I will admit that we did not always get it right every time. Here are a few outtakes. Oh, artwork. Artwork very good. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his Praise name. Praise be his Praise name. <laughs> Wait, how did Lenos miss his cue? <laughs> At least not until dinner time. Perhaps you should take her out. I will do that. And you three are going to go to the Home Depot to get what we need from Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Wait, what? You was just testing us, weren't you? Ha <laughs> that was fun. Maybe we should do a blooper reel show, like the one I saw on that DVD of Kurt Nolan's Smokey and the Thief. Perhaps we should. Lenos has no doubt tabulated all of the flubs that we had made over the past three episodes. 492. Um, hmm, but I am sure a low percentage of those would actually be fun to screen. You mean the time you were struggling to say the word Thesaurus? Or the time Grundy asked for a lozenge. Or perhaps the time that... Let's just go through them and see. No promises. 
Solomon Grundy read response from Robert Kelly. Robert Kelly say, I never read this story, but I always had a soft spot for Solomon Grundy, a fake. Solomon Grundy real. Why Robert Kelly call Grundy a fake? Solomon Grundy hate Rob. Uh, that is actually the abbreviation A-F-A-I-K, which means as far as I know. Oh, Grundy not hate Rob Kelly then. Robert Kelly say, as far as I know, Grundy's just a zombie. And as a kid, that idea creeped me out. Maybe in later years, some spoil sport writer had come along and tried to explain the hows and whys of Grundy's rebirth. But I prefer to look at stories like this as just Superman versus a zombie. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Of course, does his usual amazing job. The issue had real disaster movie feel to me since we are constantly seeing swarms of extras running around in terror, building being destroyed, etc. I still think Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praised be his name, was his own best Inca, but Oxner handles the job pretty well. I agree, Mr. Kelly, about Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praised be his name, being the best Inca for his work. I especially loved the work he had done in the Dead Man miniseries from 1986 and Cinder and Ash from 1988. Thank you for the thoughtful commentary. Robert Kelly also say, thanks for covering for me, R.E. Terra Man. What? You, you are, are quite, quite welcome, welcome Entity, Entity Robert Kelly. Kelly. Oh, that was about how you covered my Who's Who entry back in Episode 2, ain't it? Indeed it was. Bizarro now read unimportant silence from Alan Professor. Alan Professor not say, Another typical show. Not funny, uninformative, and just under none of very boring speaking. Translation. Entity Professor Alan stated, Another excellent show. Humorous, informative, and just overall a very fun listen. Thank you for the kind words, Professor. Entity Edo Bosnor on December 30th, 2017 at 2057 Coordinated Universal Time stated, Rocky Mountain Oysters. Now that's a term I hadn't heard or even thought about since high school. Otherwise, I love it when a podcast episode gives me an excuse to crack open a book I have and give it a read. In this case, The Adventures of Superman, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez... Praised be his name. Hardcover. I have to say, there's so much WTF in this story. From Solomon Grundy's stroll from Earth 2 to Earth 1, to Superman mocking up Steve to look like Clark and then putting on the Grundy disguise himself. It's good that he at least expressed some regret about leaving Grundy all alone on the moon, but he apparently has no misgivings over his... Let's be frank, temporary enslavement of Steve Lombard. That is some weapons-grade super dickery. Indeed it was. That is a very good observation, Edo. Thank you. That was something we had neglected to talk about in the previous episode. Grundy thought about it while making page commentary in gallery post, so Grundy mentioned it then. Ah, so you did. Good show, Grundy. Entity Edo Bosnar continued. I enjoyed the rundown of the story, though. 
and I think the PBHN chorus should be adopted by every show on the network. Is it not my understanding that the phrase, praised be his name, is proclaimed by the other network hosts whenever the name of entity Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praised be his name, is spoken on their shows? That is my understanding as well, and I feel that adding all of our voices to that may drown out their show of respect. And Mark Baker Wright wrote, Thanks for mentioning the Earth 2 slash Earth 1 thing. Was beginning to think I was the only one confused. Hmm. I may have been taking for granted that the listeners would be familiar with the pre-crisis DC Comics continuity and their multiple Earths. However, the crisis did take place more than 30 years ago, and not everyone had been reading comics for that. I don't think that was what was confusing this Baker Ratfeller. He followed up with, For those confused by my comment, which sounds very much like I hadn't actually listened to the episode, I can only say in my defense that I was sick when I wrote it. At that time, I started listening to it, but not only forgot that I hadn't yet finished it, but forgot that I actually read the story being discussed. Indeed, I own it as part of the Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Hardcover. My apologies all. No worries there, sir. I hope you are feeling better and had enjoyed the rest of the episode. Entity Martin Gray on December 31st, 2017 at 1211 Coordinated Universal Time stated, And wow, what a wonderful rundown of a bonkers story, with insights from a key player, commentary by a professional colleague, and marvelous background info and theorizing from our host. If there was the occasional bit of mansplaining, then there was also terra-mansplaining and sala-mansplaining. To me, it's all just fun chat. That is what we strive for. Thank you for the compliments, Mr. Gray. I'd forgotten about Terry Cross. Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, gave her a bit of a Mary Jane Watson quality. Yes, Terry Cross did have more than a passing resemblance to Mary Jane Watson from the Spider-Man comics. I wonder if that was intentional or just coincidence. Or perhaps Mr. Garcia Lopez, Praise be his name, based that character on someone he knew. Spider-Man? Who in thunderation is that? Entity Jonathan Law, also known as the Tarantula, was referred to as a Spider-Man by a radio news announcer after his first public appearance in the year 1941. Yes, that was mentioned on page 4 of his first comic book story, in Star-Spangled Comics Volume 1, Issue 1. But the Spider-Man we are talking about is Peter Parker, a different character that first appeared in Marvel Comics 20-some years later. If you are interested, I can show you the long boxes containing his adventures after the program. Entity Martin Gray continued, I'm glad Clark never used the Steve Lombard disguise kit again. It was just too convoluted and risky. I know that at this point the Superman and Clark Kent robots were out of action due to pollution. But surely lookalike cousin Van Z could have zoomed across from Candor with five minutes notice. Or Chameleon Boy could have popped in from the future. Or Supergirl could have dressed up as Clark and used super hypnosis to bedazzle colleagues and the TV audience. Podcast host and audio editor's note. 
Mr. Gray's comment about the Earth's pollution causing Superman's robot duplicates to malfunction referred to the story in World's Finest Comics, Volume 1, Issue 202, which involved a Superman robot that went rogue for that very reason. Entity Martin Gray inquired, Where does Toby park Nova when he visits? I don't hitch Nova anywhere. I just let him roam free since he can fend for himself and always comes a flying when I call. Long-range scanners detect Nova frolicking with a flock of seagulls along the California coast near Mendocino as we speak. That is over three hours away by car. Maybe so, but Nova's got an interdimensional device implanted in him, allows him to cover even further distances in a flash. It's how we were able to make our rounds from world to world back in our desperado days. Good to know. That might come in handy sometime. Entity Martin Gray concluded, Okay, off to buy shares in the Home Depot. A good investment, given how Bizarro just broke the fourth wall just now. Please note that the Dun & One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show is not sponsored by nor endorses the Home Depot. It just happens to be the closest home repair and improvement center since there is no Lowe's location in Daly City, California. Entity Martin Gray included a footnote under the Superman and Clark Kent robots, which stated, Ajax might make a fun guest co-host. Sadly, I don't think he made it to the Bronze Age, so he probably won't get to join the Zoom crew. Podcast host and audio editor's note. Ajax, a Superman robot that was transformed by the Superman Revenge Squad into a living android known as Wonder Man, appeared in the tragic tale in Superman Volume 1, Issue 163. Unfortunately, it would be extremely difficult to pull him out of the timeline to join our crew, given that he was living on borrowed time, as it were. I trust Bizarro would make a suitable substitute? Wait, you mean this square-brained lunk is sticking around? Solomon Grundy, read message from J. Kevin Collier. J. Kevin Collier say, Bravo once again, sir. Another highly entertaining and informative episode. J. Kevin Collier especially enjoy your overview of Solomon Grundy's long and convoluted career. Not to mention his on and off again powers. The banter among you and your co-hosts is great fun. A nice bit of spice added to your insightful commentary. I am glad you enjoyed the show, sir. J. Kevin Collier say, Like little Professor Man, J. Kevin Collier don't think he realized at the time that Skull was a new organization being introduced. J. Kevin Collier just assumed J. Kevin Collier missed an issue, since Superman act like they've been around for a while. J. Kevin Collier remember having the same thought about the group Ogre in Aquaman. At one point, J. Kevin Collier decided to track down all their appearances, only to find out three issues J. Kevin Collier already had were all there were. Podcast host and audio editor's note. Ogre, O-G-R-E, or the Organization for General Revenge and Enslavement, was a small but persistent mercenary terrorist group introduced in Aquaman Volume 1, Issue 26, and made later appearances in Aquaman Volume 1, Issues 31 and 53. J. Kevin Collier say, Thanks again for the great show. Looking forward to more. And thank you for the kind words, Mr. Collier.
Brian Linton wrote, Thank you for another fun and informative episode. I'm chiefly familiar with Solomon Grundy as he appeared in the Super Friends cartoon show. So it was great to learn more about his colorful comic book history. Solomon Grundy not familiar with Super Friends cartoon show. Is that another Solomon Grundy from Grundy, Kentucky? Nah, he's just an actor pretending to be you on the Magic Lantern box. The professor's got a whole run on DVD. I can show you later. First though, this here Linton feller said, Also, I wouldn't worry if it takes you a little longer than planned to get these episodes out. As far as I'm concerned, they're worth the wait. Thank you for the kind words, Mr. Linton. Solomon Grundy say next episode should be done much faster than usual. Grundy? What makes you say that? He, uh, means that we were getting more and more efficient as we were making these here episodes. You know, practice makes perfect. Let us hope so. What is next? Entity Chris Franklin on January 8th, 2018 at 2054 Coordinated Universal Time stated, Great recap on this story. I think you guys broke the Jose Luis Garcia Lopez Praise be his name, meter. I do have one question on the story, which is astonishing since this is pretty wacky overall. Why didn't Superman just use a Clark Kent robot to decoy for him on the news? Well, wait a minute. Before Lamo, er, Lanos answers, I think this was during the time that the Superman robots were out of commission due to Earth's pollution, correct? That is indeed correct, Entity Chris Franklin. As stated by Entity Martin Gray on December 31st, 2017 at 12.11 Coordinated Universal Time. In fact, Entity Martin Gray on January 9th, 2018 at 19.13 Coordinated Universal Time responded, Aw, oh, Chris, you skipped my comment, and then proceeded to choke Entity Chris Franklin. Wait, he did what? Let me see. Ah, oh, that's actually a choke of astonishment, which was quite common in Silver Age DC Comics dialogue. Nice to see Mr. Gray honoring the old school. Entity Chris Franklin continued, As for having a Grundy playdate, I'll see if I can get a hold of my Grundy. He tends to just drop in when he has an idea for a podcast, or he thinks I slighted him on my shows. Lanos, what is happening? If I bypass him for another wonderful warning by Toys episode, Ross D, he's liable to drop by. I need to error, discontinue, and virus D. Run a full self-diagnostic, gnostic, and reboot error immediately. I had never seen Lanos like that before. I had, back when Lamo opened one of our first emails from a Nigerian prince that offered to fund this here wonder show. Ah, okay then. Nice to know that Lanos had bounced back from this before. The mailroom computer seems unaffected, so why don't we carry on? Thank you very much for your response, Chris. And please keep us surprised when you hear from your Grundy. That the Siskoid feller wrote in again, saying, It's unbecoming to fail to control one's guest hosts. The accusation stings. 
in other news, when the ton-ton-ton moment came, my jaw dropped on cue. I'm your Manchurian candidate, Professor. I don't get it, and Lamo is offline so he can't explain it to me. Well, the Manchurian Candidate refers to a 1959 novel by Richard Condon about a Korean War soldier who was captured and brainwashed to become a sleeper agent who... He's on a read unfriendly response from Bryce Tim. Worst episode yet. Such a rational story, but sad to hear about it from Grundy, Solomon, and separate host. Nobody do awful job. Little Bizarro Man, keep going while Grundy not read rest of response. Haha, <laughs> very bad. Grundy discontinue. Wait a minute. Grundy can't tell skunks from house cats, yet he can understand this guy? Solomon Grundy, read response from Tim Price. Tim Price say, Best episode yet. Such a crazy story, but a joy to hear about it from Grundy and his co-host. Everyone did a great job. A special thanks to Little Professor Man for producing and putting the show together. He makes Solomon Grundy sound at his Grundy best. <sighs> but man, Flying Man was such a jerk in this story. Brainwashing a civilian to stand in for him? Fooling and stranding Solomon Grundy on the moon? That almost supervillain behavior. Tim Price actively disgusted by Flying Man. Tim Price has hard time believing the comics went this far. Ha! Grundy like Tim Price. Tim Price hate Flying Man. Grundy hate Flying Man too. Tim Price say, Thank you for sharing the two-page spreads from comic. Tim Price forgets that doing wide panels was done as early as this. Tim Price finds the interlude, the other side of space, especially effective layout for a starting story. No wonder little Professor Man enjoys issue. Thank you, Solomon Grundy, for this episode. Tim Price thinks Solomon Grundy is best at reading listener feedback. Hopefully, Solomon Grundy will read Tim Price's comment on the air. Maybe Grundy will, if that's okay with little Professor Man. Oh, indeed, sir. In fact, you already... Solomon Grundy, read response from Tim Price. Tim Price say, Best episode yet. Such a crazy story. But a joy to hear huh. about it from Well, Grundy thank you very much for the kind response, Mr. Price. And job. yes, I too believe that to Superman using Man Steve Lombard did border on questionable superhero behavior, which may be why he had never is. used such a means to conceal but his identity man, again. There had been a few occasions on which Superman used superhypnotism to make people forget they knew his secret identity which was decades before mind-wiping was considered taboo in the Identity Crisis series. Now, let us wrap this up by acknowledging those who helped promote our show on social media. The third episode of the Done in One Wonder Show had received Facebook likes, shares, and replies from Billy LaCase Brian Ng Brian Linton Chris Franklin Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics, DeBache, Derek William Crabb, Gene Hendricks, J. Kevin Collier, Jared West, Max Romero, Michael Bailey, Michelle Siskoid Albert, 
Ollie Almeida, Patrick Dale Moore, Rob Kelly, Sean Emmons, Shag Matthews, Ted Kilvington, Terry O'Malley, and Van Z. Wonders undone in one show, not received tweeter hates, repressions, and silence from Yarbro Willie, Comics Treasury, Price Tim, Kilvington Ted, Coid Sis, Daily Ryan, Rosenkild Russell, Geekily Relative, Adventures DAR, Flash Mikey, Bailey Michael, Romero Max, Cast Bash, Crusade Longbox, Elcon, Podcast Justice Trek, Dawn's First Justice, Fan Firestorm, Podcast Water and Film, Chris to Earth, Cast Digest, Gutierrez Ace David, Comics and Coffee, Buster Bob, Pages Between, Bat, Levesque Boss, and Ange. Thank you all for your generous feedback and social media activity to help get this show noticed. If you wish to leave feedback for this show, please feel free to post a comment at fireandwaterpodcast.com. You may also send an email to wondersdone, and that is one word, at gmail.com. And like Mr. Wardhill Terry, you too can call and leave a voice message up to two minutes in length at area code 415-779-4668. Voice messages we respond to will be played on the podcast, though they may be edited for time. And please, feel free to continue to suggest your favorite Done in One Wonder comic story for us to cover in a future episode. Thank you all again for listening, and a very special thank you to Will Rogers, also known as the Voiceman, who provided the voice of Superman, and my most gracious thanks to the wonderful Shannon Farnan for reprising her role of Lois Lane from the Super Friends for the show opening this episode. So with that, until the next one, we're... Yeah, about that. This'll actually be the last podcast we're doing together, Professor. The last... I don't understand. Hold, hold on, my glasses are... Bizarro totally get it. What Terraman mean? I mean, we got ourselves a new partner. <laughs> oh, what? Oh, no. Oh, yes. Professor, it is I, the real Professor Zoom, the Reverse Flash. Terraman, Solomon Grundy, why? What'd you expect, Professor? We're bad guys. <sighs> and this gent done made us an offer we can't refuse. <laughs> The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show is an unabashedly conceited member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com, via email at wondersdone at gmail.com, or by voicemail at area code 415-779-4668. 
The views expressed on Dun & One Wonders belong solely to the host and his cast of characters, who are not affiliated in any way with any professional comic book publisher or entertainment company. All copyright and trademarks of comic book characters and related concepts, as well as music, audio clips, and quoted text, are held by their respective owners. These are used for entertainment purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. Celebrity voices are impersonated, with the exception of Shannon Farnan, who receives special thanks for providing the voice of Lois Lane. Special thanks also to Will Rogers for providing the voice of Superman. The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show is a Professor Zoom Productions production. Not anymore. Ha ha. Bind them, boys.